This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Everybody! To another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who own Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I am your host, Elon Jabrowski, and with me, as always, to break down all the exciting UFA action from last weekend, it is the Player Projection Pundit. It is the Ad Drop Ace. It is the IPP MVP, your friend and mine, Brian Calm. Hello, friends and friend. It's so nice to be with you uh, to talk about all these people who have changed jerseys, changed hometowns, uh, depending on your definition of the word hometown. Uh, Elon, you and I are still in our exact same place to break down what it all means for fantasy hockey and your offseason prep for your drafts rapidly approaching in the fall. Maybe you're already in a slow draft. Yeah, maybe there's like the fantasy hockey season is nigh. It's upon us. Like all of these moves have been made. It's super exciting just for regular hockey fans. And then for fantasy, you know, we have to look at all the players who moved and then also all the players who used to be on the person's team who moved. You know, Artemi Panarin signed with the Rangers. What does it mean for Columbus? What does it mean for all the players on the Rangers? we got so much to discuss for every single signing. We're going to break down the big ones today. And then in a couple weeks in our next episode, we'll break down the smaller ones, I guess. But I think we're going to have a jam-packed, like this is going to be a long show, even though we're only going to talk about but like five or six transactions because there's so much to get into. I'm super excited for this episode, Brian. Before we get into it, of course, let's mention that we are presented by DauberHockey.com. They were super busy last weekend breaking down all of the transactions and signings themselves. Every single one. I love these articles they did. They're called Fantasy Impact Articles. And for each one, they go over, like they do a quick recap what each team got. And then they break down which players this helps in fantasy and which players this hurts in fantasy. I found it super reasonable and like useful it's it's kind of fun because for people who like reading you've got a bunch of words there if you don't like reading you could just go skip to the bottom and get the coles notes of who this helps and who this hurts according to the great dauber staff and that's basically what we're going to do today in long form audio and so uh with that brian i'm ready to go and talk about all of these players who left the columbus blue jackets to start and of course artemi panarin is at the top of the list me too. I'm ready. Don't worry, Columbus fans. We're not just talking about who left. We're going to talk about the guy who came and what it means for the rest, too. In fact, well, I'll, I'll get to it. When we talk Rangers, I, I just, it felt like it's so, like Columbus just took a beating, right? Like Panarin signaled his intention so early on. And then there was sort of like, ah, oh, but we did so well. We beat Tampa. Don't you want to stay? And then he left anyway. And it was never in doubt. So uh, don't worry, Columbus. We've got your back. 
I mean, Columbus beat Tampa. They won one playoff series. The Toronto Raptors won the championship and Kawhi still left. So, you know, you can't get these players to stay in your lame city for too long, I guess, when there's brighter cities to go visit. But let's, you know, be happy with what Columbus had with Artemi Panarin and now talk about what he's going to bring to the New York Rangers. So I want to start there. Like I said, this is after already, like the Rangers have been having a great summer. Like they traded for Jacob Truba, giving up like Neil Pionk and some other pieces that, you know, didn't seem like even that big of a price, I guess, draft picks. Uh, then they drafted Capo Caco in, the, you know, second overall. He's expected to crack the lineup, maybe even play on the first line this season. And they've also got like Kravtsov coming up. They've got Shostyorkin coming across. He's probably not going to play on the Rangers this year. But the Rangers, all of a sudden, they're going to be in a couple of years. This is going to be like a brand new team with like a, what's looking like a bunch of elite players. And it's going to be headlined, it looks like, by Artemi Panarin, who signs an 11.64 million seven year deal. Okay, so what have we seen from Artemi Panarin so far in the NHL? He's played for four seasons now, a couple on the Chicago Blackhawks. He broke out with 77 points in 15-16. Then he had 74 points in 16-17. Remember, Brian, the buzz at the time you and I were always talking about, yeah, but is he? Like, how good is he? Like, Let's see what he could do without Patrick Kane. So then he got traded to Columbus, and we got to see what he could do without Patrick Kane. And what the answer was was even better. He jumped up to 82 points in 17-18, and then 87 points last season over a 90-point pace if he had played all 82 games. Where are you at now with Panarin for next season? goes to the Rangers he's shown us that he has 90 plus point potential do you think he could keep up this 90 point pace on the Rangers is there room for him to grow even more maybe at at this point next year we're going to talk about 100 point Artemi Panarin like he's clearly a huge superstar he's getting paid as such and now I want to know if you see him being more or less valuable now that he's moved teams all the Rangers fans listening to that are like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, and like and really ramped up, so excited. And here I come with my wet blanket right at the start of the episode. Uh, so I, I don't think you, Elon, are also getting super hyped about this. Uh, I'm not sure you're going to love me after I say this, but if you covered up Artemi Panarin's point totals and just showed me the number of shots he was taking and their danger level from last year, I actually would have guessed that he'd have come out with his lowest career point totals instead of his highest. Artemi Panarin last year, he benefited from a career-high 5-on-5, 15% shooting success rate, despite his 5-on-5 shots being rated as less dangerous than in any previous year of his career. Um, That 15% is 3-4% higher than his 5-on-5 shooting percentage marks in the past. Uh, But at the same time, let's get this out of the way quickly, because I also... I uh, don't want to sound like a, a super hot takist, T-A-E-K. Uh, Panarin is awesome, right? Like he's a super elite player, even with drops in his shot generation and expected goals at five on five. He still puts up great numbers and has elite scoring and playmaking talent. So I'm really just making this opening point about Panarin to warn against thinking that 28-year-old Panarin is a lock to be a 90-point player and has a shot at 100 points because I don't think he does. I think he's got a shot at 90 points for sure, but 100, I am curious to know if you were just throwing that out there but when I'm done. Or tell me now, were you just throwing that out there? Like, do you, is there a piece of you that really thinks he can do it? I mean, I, I'm looking at it as a dummy who's not even looking at the five-on-five on-ice shooting percentage because I'm a big dumb-dumb. And by the way, for those of you listening that don't know all these advanced stats, when Brian says five-on-five shooting percentage, I think, are you referring to just his shooting percentage or the shooting percentage of all the players when they took shots while he was on the ice? 
That's his own. If it's oh. everyone else's, I'll say on ice. Okay, well, in that case, like Cam Atkinson scored 40 goals. So maybe he decided to just uh, not, I don't know, like maybe, uh, maybe he just played differently, playing with a big goal scorer. And the thing on the Rangers is it looks like they're going to have a lot of exciting players for him to play with, right? He's going to be centered by Mika Zibanejad. He's going to have maybe Kapokako on the other wing. So yeah. I don't know. I'm not saying like I'm betting on him like 50-50 shot at him getting 100 points, but yeah. he's been going up every single season and he's only 28 years old. So I feel like he could keep doing it if he's playing with great line mates, which it looks like he will be. So 100 points still isn't out of the realm realm of possibility i'm more comfortable at 90 but i'm actually most comfortable calling him a point per game player and the reason for that is actually i was ready to wax poetic and to lavish praises we love to upon mika zubanejad and say how great it is for artemi panarin to get to play with one of the best one seas in the league in mika zubanejad but the funny thing about that is that pierre-luc dubois actually had the better five-on-five offensive numbers last year. In fact, uh, you look at their point totals, and it looks bad, right? You have Pierre-Luc Dubois, 61 points, Zibanejad, 74. That's a 13-point spread. But Mika Zibanejad had 14 power play points, and that accounts for the entire thing. And if you remember, Pierre-Luc Dubois was bumped down off the top power play about halfway through the year, and that even when he was there, uh, Columbus has long had one of the most anemic extra man setups in the NHL. So I don't think that moving from Pierre-Luc Dubois to Mika Zibanejad sets the table for any improvement in point totals. If anything, I wonder if Pierre-Luc Dubois might be a little bit more offensively capable than Zibanejad. Zibanejad defensively is very effective, strong power play numbers for sure. But at five on five, I think Dubois might be the better guy to have as your sentiment. But we'll talk more about him later in the show. Uh, the third piece uh, playing with Panarin, Elon, you mentioned Capococco. Uh, that could be great, but he's not 40 goal scorer Cam Atkinson. So look, you've got Zibanejad, very defensively responsible, and that makes me happy. Kako has upside, but I don't think the Rangers are offering Panarin a better five on five situation. And that's why I'm keeping him at about that point per game pace. Okay, that's very reasonable. I like when you bring out the cold water bucket, because you know me, Brian. I get very excited. It's important to have the yin to my yang there. But let's talk about some of these other Rangers that... Because even if you're saying that Panarin may not benefit from going to the Rangers, definitely these other players on the team benefit from him coming. Like Mika Zibanejad, even if you say maybe he's a bit more defensive than Pierre-Luc Dubois, this guy's going to get more points, I think, or at least be able to keep up his 74 points from last season now that he's going to be playing with Artemi Panarin even strength and on the power play. Though I actually did see some tweets today saying maybe the Rangers want to keep Zibanejad with Kreider because they played well together and then put Panarin with like Philip Hedl or something. So I guess nothing's a guarantee, but assuming Mika Zibanejad, who you got assume is the front runner to be the top line top power play center on the new york rangers like he had 74 points last season now he gets panarin i feel like he has a very good shot to be point per game himself but of course i feel like it's kind of weird to say that panarin and zibanejad will be the same but if you have panarin at point per game does that mean you think zibanejad kind of stays in the same place having panarin around actually should help zibanejad's five on five scoring because last year zibanejad got a lot of chris Kreider, some zuccarello and then like jesper fast and Pavel Buchnevich, who we like, but wasn't really getting consistent deployment or finding his game. And uh, Nemesnikov was another common line mate of Zibanejad. So you look at those names and Artemi Panarin, head and shoulders above them all. So yeah, considering what Zibanejad did last year, I think he should be able to pick up 75-80 without too much doubt. And, and Panarin being there at five on five could really help push him above uh, above 80 into that 80 point club after last year he just finally entered the 70 point club 
Wow. Okay. So we'll obviously dig into this when we record our almanac and actually come up with projections. I feel like there has to be at least a 10 point difference between Panarin and Zibanejad, but we'll get there. Then I'll mention a few other players, Brian, that you could talk about who you want. So I already called Jacob Truba as my favorite sleeper for next year. I guess he's not much of a sleeper anymore because I'm talking about him so much and so is everyone else. But like, I already loved him going, coming to the Rangers because he'd finally get a shot to be that top power play defenseman, which again, not a guarantee, but that's what I think they're going to do at the start of the season. I thought he was already due for like a solid, like 55 point season after 50 points last season maybe even 60 now you get artemi panarin in. that's got to be pretty great unless of course you're still holding a candle for d'angelo or fox or shattenkirk getting top power of the time but again I'm, I'm still leaning on truba so i love this for truba then we've got capo kaka who i mentioned who you know people were already excited about before the panarin signing now he potentially could be playing with panarin i, I wonder how high we're going to go for his projection in the almanac like maybe 60 65 you know after we saw what elias Pettersson did last season i don't know and like kaka's gonna be playing with someone a lot better then brian i'll just throw out any some random other rangers names and then you could discuss who you want like there's chris Kreider, who you now maybe gets bumped from the top line by panarin you got pavel buchnevich who maybe could be on the top line or maybe get a spot on the top power play a uh, kraftsoff's coming to play adam fox is a another name that people are excited about so yeah those are the random rangers why don't you pick a couple and tell me what you think about how this affects them Sure. Well, I'll start with Jacob Truba, who is right up there with the best power play quarterbacks last year. Truba's ranked seventh in points per 60 last season amongst your Klingbergs and Brent Burns's. Uh, Neil Pionk, by the way, was ranked fifth. So take a grain of salt with that. But Truba's underlying that, like, he looks like the real deal more so than Neil Pionk. Uh, Truba also, unlike Pionk, posted top 30 scoring rates amongst defensemen at five-on-five five as well. And that puts him in the company of guys like Seth Jones and Tori Krug. And, of course, again, you're seeing names like Brendan Dillon and Brendan Montour and Jordy Ben around there also. But you're not seeing those weird names in the power play scoring. You're not seeing the weird power play guys in the even strength scoring. And so Truba's got it all. He, he really has strong scoring at all situations last season when he was finally given the opportunity. So I, I believe in Jacob Truba, uh, given the opportunity, being someone who can get you like Krug or Barry type production. So I'm going to think that he can produce 55 if he is the top power play quarterback, which at this point seems like a strong possibility, but there are other candidates, right? You've still got Shattenkirk in the mix and I, I don't think the Rangers will want him there, but we'll see. The name that you also have to watch out for is Anthony D'Angelo, who, uh, you know, can't go long enough without ticking off his coach or team or whoever uh, to really get a long look at that position. But I, I know that's the, uh, that's the intent for, for his role, especially before they acquired Truba. They wanted Anthony D'Angelo to build into this role at some point. Um, that was his sort of prospect project. So you wonder if that project has been derailed now. So it, it's just something to keep in mind before buying too wholesale in on Truba. Uh, and then who else did you mention? Well, Kapakaka, we've talked about. Great for him He's on if he's on the top line. Buchnevich, um, who knows? Like, we still don't know exactly what the Rangers think of him or, or what sort of latitude they want to give him. Um, Chris Kreider, probably good for him. Uh, I don't know if he ends up on the top line, although you have to also balance that Kevin Hayes is out of the picture too. So you've essentially got whoever's on the top line in uh, for New York in good shape. The second line though, I'm, I'm not so sure they've got the depth to really help a full top six group of wingers be fantasy relevant. So you really want to be on that top line um, if you're a Rangers forward. And I would be nervous about buying on, on Chris Kreider if he's not on that top line, even if he's on the top power play, but second line, eh, you know, he's such a hot and cold guy. 
Yeah, I guess you've got Philip Heedle, you've got Kravtsov, like you've got some players coming up that could potentially, I know Heedle could play center, though he was playing wing a lot last season, so obviously a lot of question marks. This team's supposed to be rebuilding, but like, I'll, I'll be honest, Brian, as soon as I saw the Panarin was signing, I rushed, I searched on Google, like, where can I bet on the Rangers to win the cup? I found some random site where the odds were 66 to 1 on the Rangers to win the cup. I put down $10, so if I win, I'm going to get like, I don't know. Someone do the math for me, but I think it was over a thousand dollars anyways. And so I was very excited about that. And then all of a sudden, like the odds went away. Now they're apparently at 30 to one. So obviously maybe the odds makers hadn't changed yet. People are a little more into the Rangers winning the cup though. 30 to one still doesn't make them anything like a favorite though. But imagine in a couple seasons, I wouldn't be surprised to see that go down to 20 to one, maybe even 10 to one as some of their young players get older. So great for them. And also maybe great if you're interested in a goalie, we've been talking on our patron cast recently and other shows are like, this is going to be the year of the tandem. There's so many teams where you don't know who the starting goalie is and you'll have to decide if you want to maybe try to draft the tandem or take a shot on one of the goalies but the Rangers have Lungfist and Georgiev and I, or Georgiev right though so, okay so I made a mispronunciation Brian I've got to tell you by the way Neil Pionk I've told you so many times you keep saying Pionk Pionk P- no it's Pionk it's like two syllables Pionk okay uh so you're making fun of someone's name not nice I wasn't I <laughs> just leave me with the pronunciation I wasn't Come on. Remember back in the day when, as I was prepping my side of the document, you would like highlight the players' names and give me the pronunciations to make there sure. There was a didn't... time and we needed that. <laughs> okay. What was I talking about? Oh, yeah. The Rangers goalies. I don't know. Like, Lungfist obviously is Henrik Lungfist, but he's also not Henrik Lungfist, if you know what I mean, from what we've seen over the last couple of seasons, how he did in the World Hockey Championships. Uh, Georgiev has shown us to be pretty decent. I don't think Shostyorkin is coming up this year, so might be a good tandem to own if you're excited about the New York Rangers because they're bringing in all this talent. So, I don't know. I don't even know if you have anything to say about that, but throwing it out there that the Rangers goalies could be worth more now than they were before this Panarin signing. I'm much more interested in Lungfist today than I was a week ago. Uh, if I've got my my timing right, and that it's been a week since Panarin has signed. But point being, I yeah, Lungvis has a better team playing in front of him this year than he did last. I'm looking for and and Truba as well. Um, so yeah, not a bad tandem to own. And I, I don't even think you need to like. I would expect Hank to start 50 games if he can stay healthy, which he um, has done a pretty good job of doing as he heads towards the twilight of his career. And Georgiev could be a good spot start. So yeah, they're both interesting goalies to own and probably will be undervalued come draft time. Okay, so I guess that's it for our Rangers talk. We'll talk about the Columbus Blue Jackets once we talk about all the other players that they've lost, and then we'll look at the impact on their team. Mason is pointing out in the chat room that probably I should be better at math and 66 to 1 times $10. Yeah, that makes sense that it would be 660 I think that I put down a little more because I think my, maybe it was like $15. I don't remember. Uh, also, RMCF is pointing out that Truba benefited from Buff and Morrissey injuries, so maybe he had inflated numbers. But I guess the thing is he benefited from it by getting that spot that now we're seeing him landing potentially in the ra- on the Rangers. So that's why I think he could maybe do what he did on Winnipeg or maybe better. Though maybe I should just be happy to see him get 50 points before I start going even higher than that. Uh, Brian, are you ready to go to Sergei Bobrovsky joining the Florida Panthers? Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, so the Panthers had a busy day. They also signed Anton Strahlman, Brett Connolly, Noel Asiari, but, uh, and I'm probably pronouncing that wrong, but definitely Sergei Bobrovsky was the big fish. He signs a 10 million seven year deal. Uh, also, we should mention that this signing comes in the wake of uh, Luongo retiring, uh, Reimer being traded to the Hurricanes, and also the Panthers drafted a young kid, Spencer Knight, in the first round of the entry draft. And that's a goalie, usually goalies don't get drafted in the first round. So Spencer Knight probably wasn't too happy with the signing because now it might be quite a few years before he gets a chance to be the number one goalie on the Florida Panthers. But 
In the meantime, Bobrovsky is there. He's an elite goalie in the league. He had a rough start last season. If you recall, there were even times where he wasn't getting the start that we expected him to. Brian, I remember you were really frustrated owning him in tier one of the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, though he definitely helped you at the end. Uh, yeah, but he ended the season strong, right? He had 926 save percentage in his final 17 games. He helped push the Blue Jackets into the playoffs. He had a 913 overall. So that just goes to show how bad he was before that really strong finish. Uh, but this is after he's put up two straight 920 plus save percentage seasons. So Bobrowski has been good lately. Of course, if you want to go way back in time, if you want to go like four years back, 2015-16, he had a rough year that season. It was kind of an injury-riddled stinker of a season. He had a 908 save percentage. So I, just to say, maybe he's not like a guarantee to be awesome, but like what goalie is, right? I guess if any, like as far as you can rely on goalies, Bobrovsky's probably the type of goalie that you should be able to rely on. He is 31 next season. Like he's 30 now. He's going to be 31 next season. I don't know if that should weigh into it. Anyways, that's a lot of rambling. Brian, does this move move Bobrovsky up or down your goalie rankings for next season going from Columbus to Florida? Is it more of a wash? Is he someone you'd reach for? If like Let's say you were the type of person who was going to reach for a goalie and try to get a goalie in the first couple of rounds of your draft. Is Bobrovsky in that elite tier where it's worth it to go and spend a draft pick for someone like him over some of the other goalie options out there? Uh, maybe does getting Strawman help uh, Bobrovsky and the Panthers like have better defense? He's supposed to be a defensive guy. Uh, was, why don't you just go ahead and talk about Bobrovsky because I've rambled long enough. Well, after your nine questions about him, I'm just going to circle back to the first, which was uh, you asked me whether or not him moving to Florida moves him up or down my draft list. And no, it doesn't do either. Bobrovsky stays exactly where he is in terms of how much I like him. And yeah, I was a very frustrated Bobrovsky owner last year. Very happy when he turned it on. And I expect to see more good than bad from Bobrovsky, which isn't something... I can say about a whole lot of NHL goalies with the same degree of confidence. The reason that Bobrovsky doesn't move up or down my rankings is that I don't like Florida any more defensively than I did Columbus. Uh, in fact, I think Florida is a smidge worse, even with the Strawman ad. And I don't think uh, Florida is really primed to be able to offer any more wins for Bobrovsky than Columbus did in recent years. So you just look at what Bobrovsky was able to offer in the last two, three seasons with Columbus uh, Florida can probably offer about the same thing. And you mentioned, Elon, uh, like you've mentioned to me that uh, Bob is going to get more run support in Florida. But at five on five, the two teams were pretty much neck and neck in offensive metrics. So you can't really uh, say, I mean, Florida had a better power play, right? So so that's one place, but I imagine Columbus will fix that eventually. Although that's sort of not part of the picture anymore. Um, so the biggest pro I can find for Bobrovsky is because uh, the rest really seems to be a wash is that there won't be any of the weird stuff with his team that there was last year in Columbus. Remember there was like random last minute scratchings and suspension or like, you know, quiet hushed in team suspensions. And there was a clear dislike between him and Tortorella or management. Like something was not jibing and they started the year uh, wanting to start Corpusalo like to one out of every three games, which seemed just nuts, especially the way Corpusalo was playing. So I don't think that is going to happen in Florida. And that's a reason to like Bob a little more, um, which is to say you should like him about the same as you did before the start of last season when things did start to go south between him and the team. Um, he, like the, Bobrovsky, I think in, in drafts is going to be one of those classic examples of a guy whose draft value uh, unreasonably rises like his his ADP rises because of the contract he gets. Like this this is an effect that happened and it happened, I believe, when Matt Bolesky signed his big deal and when David Clarkson signed his big free agent deal. People just 
see that contract like, oh, he really believes in this guy. So should I. But Bob, we already believed in him and he's not going to a markedly better situation. So he, all this to say he stays pretty even keel, uh, does not move the needle fantasy wise uh, with him moving from Columbus to Florida. Yeah, I don't know. There's I get everything that you're saying makes sense. Uh, Mason's pointing out in the chat room that like before last season, Luanco and Reimer were putting up almost 928 percentages in Florida. So he says he feels like Bobrovsky can maybe do good in that spot as well. And like that's the thing. Like it's hard for me to separate because Florida led in a lot of goals last season, but also like Luanco and Reimer were pretty crappy. Like so, it's hard to know like what they could have done if they would have had better goaltending. So when you say they could have the same number of wins, I mean that said, like Columbus has been a really good team for the past couple of years. I know last year they had to scratch and claw to make it to the playoffs the year before that a lot of people thought they were a decent contender i love all the offense that we see on florida and even their defense you know they have yandel ekblad matheson now strawman like it's not the worst looking top four but uh maybe you're probably right like it would be crazy to say that he's like worth so much more now that he's on florida but i definitely think that florida gets better obviously no longer having to rely on luongo and reimer this is a team now that should contend for the playoffs you would hope if Bobrovsky could be even average you'd think that should be enough especially compared to what they were getting from uh, Luongo and Reimer before my dog is very excited about Sergei Bobrovsky yes Cody I know it's very exciting by the way I will point out that with Luongo and Reimer out of the picture it looks like the backup goalie next season will be Sam Montembeau who we saw a little bit at the end of last year I don't think we saw enough to let us know either way what we think he'll be able to do in the NHL he's obviously the clear backup goalie and like I said a lot of teams don't have a clear backup goalie but here we have a clear case so he'll probably be a guy you'll want to know his name because you might want to stream him in on some games when Bobrovsky is rested but probably not anyone worth discussing or drafting right he's probably gonna be at the bottom tier in Schmorgoliesborg when we put all the goalies into tears as a backup goalie who probably won't play much yeah, and that's sort of what I was getting at with this move of Bobrovsky to Florida. Uh, Montembeau, not a Corpusalo, not somebody that the organization is hoping uh, to take the reins and to step into the number one position eventually. Montembeau is there strictly to back up because they are committed to Bobrovsky now for a very long time. Yeah, and obviously, if you want to know how this affects Spencer Knight, we could get into it. But you can listen to Prospect Central Cam's pro- podcast, Cam Robinson, or of course, it's Peter Harling's podcast, Dauber Prospects Radio. And I'm sure they're talking a lot about what's going on with Spencer Knight, because that's obviously not great for his short-term fantasy value. Okay, let's go to the Nashville Predators, who grabbed another Columbus Blue Jacket, one that wasn't there for very long. But still, Matt Duchesne signs an $8 million per year, seven-year deal. So a nice get for the Nashville Predators, who have needed some center depth, especially after Kyle Turris really wasn't shaking out Duchesne's point paces have been all over the place the last few seasons like it's really hard for me to try to come up with a projection for him next year like just look at him last season he ended up with 79 points which was amazing the year before he had 59 points with Colorado and Ottawa last season he was with Ottawa and Columbus then he had 44 the year before in Colorado he had 64 the year before that he had 55 the year before that and he had 81 in 2013-14 so if I were to sort these numbers we're looking at an 81 79 64 59 55 and 44 in like his last six seasons so he's run the gambit of being not even fantasy relevant at all and basically being a superstar and it gets even more complicated even if you say like forget about the past let's just look at like last season where he had this like really weird season he had 58 points in 50 games with the Sens was like one of the top players in the league basically and then only 12 points in 23 games once he got to Columbus so like Brian how the heck are we supposed to project this guy for next season on yet another new team I'll be honest like I could see you projecting 60 and I could see you projecting 80 and like neither would surprise me. So I'm very curious to see where you're going to land with Matthew Shane on the Nashville Predators. The reason we've seen so much Jekyll and Hyde from Duchesne is that his role has changed constantly, right? Like in Colorado, he showed up, 
gangbusters. And then so and then the whole team had an off year, and then uh, he was still good, but then the team wouldn't use him in the role that was best for him. And he's traded to Ottawa, where he essentially was the only guy, had to be the guy, was playing with world-class talent in Mark Stone. And then he went to Columbus, who acquired him, but didn't really seem to know what to do with him. He moved around their top six with several different line mates after he was acquired and just didn't seem to be put in a position to succeed by the Blue Jackets. Uh, When you look at what he did in Columbus versus what he was able to do in Ottawa, uh, in Columbus, Duchesne had fewer shots, fewer expected goals at five on five, and it was all made uglier. Uh, because he actually had a, an inflated shooting percentage in Ottawa and regression hit way too hard. Like the pendulum sl- swung way too far the other way for Duchesne's shooting percentage, 11% drop as IPP fell too. So variance clocked him in Columbus, but also he wasn't doing as well. Uh, and I think that was a function of what they were asking him to do. They, he wasn't getting to play the same game that he was playing in Ottawa. So I don't think Columbus Duchesne is the real Duchesne, though it's possible like Nashville similarly misdeploys him too, right? They did that with their late season acquisitions of Grandland and Simmons. And we talked about that on the show, but I'm not expecting Nashville to blow it with their Duchesne deployment. Like they've got an off season and camp to figure out what they'll do with him and what he can offer. Um, so all this to say, I still don't know exactly who Matt Duchesne can be in Nashville. I, I hope they're the right fit for him. They seem to want him badly enough. He seemed to want them badly enough. I think I'm going to err on the happy side and put him down for closer to 80 than for 60. I like Forsberg and Arvidsson as his line mates, and I fully expect him to be their top line center. It feels like he should get a shot there to see if he can put up more than the 64 points that Ryan Johansson has peaked at in that position that said Ryan Johansson may actually be more suited to the role than Duchesne. So uh, like Duchesne could get up there, it not work out. And then Ryan Johansson ends up back up on the top line. And something to also keep in mind is that Duchesne and Johansson, if you look at their, their style and their numbers over the years, they seem relatively comparable. So if Ryan Johansson was only able to get 64 points in his best season as a top line center in Nashville, I wonder how much better Duchesne can do. I'm optimistic. Like I'm hopeful. I like him playing with Forsberg and Arvidsson. Like I said, Um, I'm still going to be a little careful about drafting Duchesne for that reason. I I think he's probably going to be available in your drafts as a 60 point guy. And then, you know, you take him there and you're just hoping he does end up spending most of the year on top line, top power play and outperforming a 65 point Ryan Johansson. Okay, interesting. Yeah, so 60, maybe 65 point guy for Duchesne. I think that's where I'd land with him also. Brian, it sounds like you really love Duchesne. You're basically saying either he'll do well or he'll not be used correctly. And that'll be the reason why he doesn't do well. You have no concern that he's like not going to just be a good player there. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm like, I just, I, I obviously watched a lot of him in Ottawa last season and he was the lone bright spot. So there might be some bias there. Just like all I could do last year was drool over Duchesne and Stone and uh, to a lesser extent, Kachuk and Shabbat. Like that's, that's all I had, Elon. Okay. So it's hard for me to to take anything away from Duchesne and, and not try and just wish him the best in his new location. So of full disclosure on that bias. Yeah. 
Yeah, so let's talk about this line one thing that you were discussing. I want to maybe think outside the box here. This, to me, looks like it could be like a Vegas Golden Knights situation, right? Like, they have William Carlson centering what we've been calling the top line with Marcia So and with Riley Smith. But then, you know, Paul Stasny came in, and then he played with Pacioretty and Alex Tuck, and now they even have Mark Stone. So it's like, which even is the top line? And there is, like, Mikhail Granlund is there in Nashville. I feel like... Going into last season, at least, we would have talked about Granlund as just as good a line mate as Philip Forsberg, right? Or like not in completely different leagues. So I wonder if like maybe it doesn't even matter so much like whether, you know, Duchesne plays with Forsberg and Arvidsson or if he plays with Granlund and I don't know, like Tolvanen or, you know, the, the second option then maybe like uh, Craig Smith, like maybe that is a, is a downgrade. Like, but it might get flipped around in a way where it doesn't really matter. Like they might have two even lines as their top two lines. And then as long as he's on the top power play, which I'm sure he will be, maybe it doesn't even matter so much like who plays with Forsberg assuming Mikhail Granlin is that superstar that he showed us he was in Minnesota. Maybe he's not. So maybe uh, I throw that out there to you and then I'll mention some other players on Nashville and then maybe we can like sort of discuss the team as a whole and where we think they're going. Like we have Philip Forsberg, first of all, who I mentioned last season was a bit of a down year for him. 50 points in 64 games. That's a 64 point pace. You've already said you expect better from him next season on previous shows. I assume that you're now more confident in that now that like he adds, let's say, Matt Duchesne, either as a centerman or at least on his top power play to help dish him the puck. I think Forsberg could raise his value over last year. It was a down year. And the main reason we've talked about this a lot was that uh, the Nashville power play was hot garbage. Forsberg pays for just 13 power play points. He should be good to get a handful more there, enough to take him above 70 points as a starting point, which is nice. Okay, yeah. So you're still really into Forsberg, of course. Uh, then we have Ryan Johansson, who maybe gets bumped from the top line. Like we said, uh, also, like we said, uh, he had 64 points last season in 80 games. That's his career high on the Nashville Predators. Uh, you have Victor Arvidsson, who had a great year last year. He had 34 goals and 48 points in 58 games. If you spread that out over 82 games, that's a 48-goal, 68-point pace. I didn't even realize Arvidsson was doing so well. He almost had like a 50-goal season in terms of his pace. Obviously, it's hard to do that over a whole season, but I didn't realize he had such an amazing goal-scoring record last season. Like, uh, Did you? Like, uh, Arvidsson is amazing. I guess we probably didn't notice as much as we should have because it stopped short of being a, a full season where the number would have been really great. Uh, but Arvidsson scored so many goals because he shot 10% at five on five for two seasons prior and then 16% last season. So what I, that's a 6% jump in his shooting percentage at five on five. It seems like Arvidsson's shots were a little more dangerous, but not enough to warrant that kind of variance in his shooting percentage. Uh, Arvidsson also a great shooter takes a good amount of shots, but he wasn't shooting any more often last season either to get all these extra goals. So um, 48 goal pays for Arvidsson. Too good to be true. I'd expect him to still find his way towards 40, though. Keep in mind that Victor Arvidsson, and I, I would hope people at least realize that he's been a 30-goal scorer three times now, and while scoring 30 goals, he has never had more than four of them come on the power play. So give him the 30 he's always been able to get, plus a hopeful 10 more or so on the power play that actually hopefully works this season, and that'll wash out any sort of shooting percentage regression that Arvidsson is going to face next season. I really could talk myself into calling him a 45-goal guy. I'm not quite there yet, um, but I'm, I am very excited about his goal-scoring ability. You know, get, like just that he's done so much with so little coming on the power play, that's generally not how these goal scorers, you know, 30 guys, 30 goal guys even, let alone 35, 40, 45 goal guys, they don't rack up 
all these goals at even strength, right? They're just cashing in on the power play. And Arvidsson has not even had the chance to do that yet. In fact, he's actually been better shorthanded. He has 13 shorthanded points in his last three seasons. I was pacing for a couple more than that uh, if he hadn't been injured this year. So he's a really good guy with some extra value in leagues that count shorthanded points too. Yeah, it's wild. I guess it's like similar to Jake Gensel, right? Who wasn't on the top power play and still scored 40 goals last year. I guess he got mm-hmm. on the top power play a bit, but so did Arvidsson. Uh, yeah, I feel like people don't consider Arvidsson and Gensel in the same league fantasy-wise, but maybe they should. I'm going to add Timo Meyer to that mix too, right? We talked about him all season, not getting a huge power play one opportunity, but still just putting putting up goals and points all season. Yeah, and we don't have the Sharks scheduled for today, but definitely on the next episode when we talk about Joe Pavelski, leaving that opens up a nice, juicy spot for Timo Meyer to jump on that San Jose top power play. So I expect him to really benefit from what happened in UFA last week. Uh, but still on Nashville, I guess the big question now, like speaking of the power play, so Mikhail Granlund, uh, 49 points in 63 games with Minnesota last year, and then only five points in 16 games with Nashville. So just like Duchesne actually had a lot of trouble integrating with his new team, wasn't producing with his new team. Uh, now, you know, with Duchesne coming in, there's only room for four forwards on this power play. And we assume Forsberg, Arvidsson, Duchesne, then there's Johansson, Granlund. That's five names. Someone's going to be the odd man out. My gut tells me it's going to be Granlund, right? Oh, and of course, Roman Yosi will be there as the defenseman on the power play, who, by the way, I already said before that I love what happened for him during the offseason with P.K. Subban leaving. So now Roman Yosi's the for sure top power play defenseman. I don't know who the four forwards are going to be, though. And yeah, so I guess in general, I guess maybe you could answer my question about whether it's that big a deal for Duchesne playing with Granlin versus playing with like Forsberg. And then also, what do you think is going to happen in general on this power? And what does this all mean from a guy like Mikhail Granlin, who is another big mystery going into next season for me? It's a very sensitive time for the Nashville power play. So I would expect them to to just figure out their best five personnel, but I could all and I my hunch is also that Grenlin gets left off the top unit. But if things don't start clicking within, I don't know, a week, two weeks, three weeks, I would expect to see shifts. I see Nashville ready to play around. I remember last year that Peter Laviolite got to a point where he was sending out his second unit to begin power plays, to take that offensive face off, to begin the power play. That's how frustrated he was. I could see a similar lack of patience following uh, through to this season if they can't figure out what's going wrong quickly. Anyway, so back to Granlin, that means he he might, you know, take turns on and off the top power play, but I think that's his best case scenario, which does limit his point scoring potential. We know that he is capable of being, you know, a 65, 70 point guy if he is the guy, but I don't see that being the case in Nashville. So I'll have him around 55, maybe 60 points come draft day. Yeah, so it looks like Duchesne coming in. Not great for Ryan Johansson, potentially. Not great for Mikhail Granlin, potentially. So yeah, not all roses for Nashville, though. Hey, if they could make a playoff run, that'd be great. And they now kind of remind me of, of like the Washington Capitals from a couple of years ago, right? Like we had expected them to be a cup contender for so long. Finally, sort of the spotlight was off them a little bit. And then maybe now's the perfect time for them to go on a run. We'll have to wait and see what happens. Obviously, we'll have to see how the goaltending shakes out. Uh, okay, so now I guess we can go to the Columbus Blue Jackets, who... Uh, Brian, have had a lot of turnover. They've lost these three players we've discussed in Panarin, Duchesne, and Bobrovsky. They did do something, though. Hey, they signed Gustav Nyquist. 
So that's something, right? Four-year, $5.5 million per year deal. Uh, he had 60 points last season on Detroit in San Jose. Of course, a lot of people would say that Nike was really benefited from playing with Dylan Larkin, and maybe he's not like really a 65, 70-point guy like he was looking in Detroit. Obviously, in San Jose, he floundered a little bit. I wouldn't say he floundered. Also, like who knew, like who just like these guys we've been talking about, Granlin and Duchesne switching teams, you know, it was maybe hard to find a footing of where exactly he belonged. Now he's locked in on the Columbus Blue Jackets. And now that he's there and now that these other players are gone we're we, it's going to be really fun to try to figure out who are the guys who are fantasy relevant and who are the guys who are valuable what's the top six going to look like over in columbus so how about i just go through a bunch of names and then afterwards you can talk about who you want kind of like we did before with the uh, new york rangers so obviously we've got pierre luc dubois he will go back to being the top line center now that Duchesne is out of the picture. So that was probably good for Dubois that Duchesne is gone. Not great for him that he loses Artemi Panarin, though. Like Dubois was having an amazing season. He had 53 points in his first 61 games before basically becoming fantasy irrelevant once Duchesne arrived and he wasn't playing with Panarin or Atkinson. He was putting out, he only had eight points in his final 21 games. It's terrible. So now uh, you'd imagine Dubois gets back with Atkinson doesn't play with Panarin. And now we have to figure out who that other line mate will be. And I guess we'll try to speculate a little bit in the future, but in general, maybe we should just talk about the players one at a time. Like I am curious to get your sense on Pierre-Luc Dubois. Like, do you see him building on his sophomore season? Like he had 61 points, which is still a good year. Like, is that what you think we should expect for him next year? Or do you think he still has a lot of room to grow now that he's going to be like the guy on the team? Kind of like Matt Barzell last year. Kind of reminds me of that when Tavares left and it didn't work out like so great for Barzell, but you know, it's still a guy that we really like, even if he's not playing with the, the elite line mates that he had in the past. Well, with Panarin leaving the team, he's taking some goals with him for sure. And that will affect Pierre-Luc Dubois. Uh, but Pierre-Luc Dubois is a very good hockey player. A good player, had some bad runs last year uh, that were really painful for his owners. Also had some bad deployment fortunes as well. But now Pierre-Luc Dubois uh, most evidently has the misfortune of losing his 80 to 90 point side piece in Artemi Panarin. Uh, so that, that will affect him on an individual level though, like just sort of zeroing in on Pierre-Luc Dubois. I think he's primed to build on last season. It's just going to be his third year in the NHL and he's still only 21 years old, plenty of room to grow and develop still. And I hope that's going to wash out a chunk of what Dubois loses with Panarin out of the picture. And I hope that most of the rest of what he loses is washed out by an improved power play role. Dubois had just nine power play points last season after being bumped from the top unit about halfway through the year. So I I think he's going to get to 60 with the right line mates. Pierre-Luc Dubois could be a 70 plus point player. Like, I think he's he's in Mika Zibanejad territory. And I look at Zibanejad's line mates last year. uh, We talked about it being mostly... Uh, oh my gosh, I'm blanking. Kreider, Buchnevich. <laughs> yeah, and Zuccarello. And think that Pierre-Luc Dubois sort of has comparable guys flanking him this year. So maybe he can put a 74-point season together if the Columbus power play bounces back with Pierre-Luc Dubois being a key cog in it. Yeah, I guess that power play is going to be the big question mark with a lot of this Columbus talk. Uh, Dubois, by the way, uh, Ryan's pointing out in the chat room, don't forget, this guy's really great for peripherals, especially hits. Like, if you're in a league that counts hits, Dubois had 115 hits last year. Maybe he even plays more minutes next year, which would mean he could potentially get more hits. So he might be a little underrated now with everyone like concerned with Panarin leaving. But Brian, you're saying that you think he could still maybe improve on his overall 61 points. And, you know, he brings the peripherals with it. So this could be a really valuable guy. And, you know, yeah, he doesn't have Panarin. He still does 
does have a pretty great looking line mate in Cam Atkinson, who I don't know if you noticed, maybe kind of a quiet season, just like Victor Arvidsson. This guy scored 41 goals last year. He had 69 points overall. So a fantastic overall season for Cam Atkinson. Like Dubois, he was also pacing for a lot more, but then cooled off at the end. He only had 11 points in his final 21 games. I never know how to read into that if it means like, oh, we should be concerned about him because he wasn't able to do it all season. Or if you should be like, wow, look how good this guy showed he could be. If only he could just figure out these last 20 games. Maybe this is like a point per game guy. So yeah, he Cam Atkinson is there for Dubois. And also in general, like Cam Atkinson, what do you think? Like he scored 41 goals last year. Do you expect a lot of these goals to disappear with Panarin out of the picture? I don't know that I do. And the reason I'm I'm hesitant to just take a bunch away is that Cam Atkinson was a 35 goal scorer before Artemi Panarin ever played for the Blue Jackets. Now, sure, Cam Atkinson in that season where he scored 35 goals, he scored 10 times on barely 40 shots with the man advantage, and that helps his overall shooting percentage. But at the same time, Cam Atkinson has significantly increased his power play shot rate since then. So even if his shooting percentage hasn't stayed as high as it was that year, uh, he's putting on more shots, more shots on net to compensate that. So I am not getting too down on Cam Atkinson. 40 goals, 70 points, going to be hard for him to repeat. But I think I think Atkinson should be good to get back to at least 35 goals, 65-point territory. Like, I'm not all doom and gloom about the Columbus Blue Jackets. I still think Dubois and Atkinson, people are just going to be like, oh, they lost Panarin. And we talked last year about how much worse they looked when Panarin wasn't playing with them. And it's true. Panarin made them better, but they don't become nobodies. They still keep a a solid chunk of relevance um, going into next season, especially going back to Dubois again, especially Dubois. He's growing. It's only his third uh, season in the league. Atkinson, by the way, because it took him forever to break out. So easy to forget that he's already 30 years old. Right. But hey, 30 years old, just scored 40. So maybe he could keep that up. We're not expecting him to become a 50 goal scorer now. We'll be very happy if he can stay close to what he did last year. And then, of course, the big thing we need to speculate about is that we have so many contenders to maybe step into Panarin's even strength and power play roles. It's such a big hole. But, you know, someone's going to benefit, right? Someone's going to get to play with Dubois and Atkinson. Someone's going to play extra time on the power play. Here's some contenders I'll throw at you. We've got Josh Anderson, who had 27 goals, 47 points last season, 230 shots, a bunch of hits, like he blocks. Like Josh Anderson, great for multi category leagues. If he could get on the top line in power play, this could be a huge sleeper in fantasy drafts next year. You've got Boone Jenner, who, you know, we've sort of been hot and cold about. I think you more cold and me more hot over the years. He still ended last year with 38 points, which isn't nothing. But maybe he gets on the top line. We've got Gustav Nyquist, who I already mentioned earlier. Like, they didn't sign him to not be in the top six. I'd imagine maybe he gets to play on the top line. He's played left wing before. Uh, Oliver Bjorkstrand didn't have that exciting of a season overall. He had 36 points, but nine goals and two assists in his final 10 games. Then he was great in the playoffs. So this guy really broke up. Maybe he could continue that going to next year. Maybe he's the guy who benefits from Panarin leaving. So of all of these names I just threw at you, is there anyone who you're especially excited about and thinking that they will like benefit big and become like a super fantasy relevant guy on your roster next season? I guess Josh Anderson already was fantasy relevant, but like for him, it could be even more. I'm going to begin just by talking quickly about Nyquist, uh, because you mentioned at the start, he's their new addition, who's going to, you know, help balance, fill out the top six. And my big concern for him is the same as it was when he went to San Jose, which is he doesn't have Dylan Larkin with him. And yeah, I like Pierre-Luc Dubois a lot, not as much as Dylan Larkin. Of course, Cam Atkinson helps uh, balance out that third piece. He's probably better than you know the various third pieces that were playing on that Detroit line with him, where he's seeing a lot of success. But I still don't believe that Gustav Nyquist can 
repeat his Detroit performance in Columbus, even if he gets top line, top power play, like that could get him into 55, 60 point territory, which is good. But I think his upside is limited. I have, I have more faith in Dubois or Atkinson beating or meeting expectations than I do Gustav Nyquist. As for the rest of the crew, Josh Anderson's production last year looks sustainable. He could do it again. Uh, Bjorkstrand was able to turn it on before quickly turning it off again or having it turned off by his coach. It was very hard to read exactly what he was being asked to do night in, night out. And it's hard to read what will happen uh, for the next year. And I'm going to drop a name here that I don't think you mentioned yet. Uh, It's Alex Wenberg, which I know is Ah. ridiculous. I know. I know. And I'm not getting too excited about him. But he's still in Columbus after an abysmal season where it seemed like he hated his team and his team hated him. But he's still there. And they kind of need him. Like they could bump him to third line center and have uh, Foligno or maybe Boone Jenner uh, center the second line instead. And that's totally a possibility. But if Wenberg does find his way into the top six. Just, yeah, like the more I talk about it, the more I'm like, why did I even bring him up? He's just still there is the shocking thing. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the big decision for us, Brian, will be when we do our second ever NHL Audio Almanac and we get to the Columbus Blue Jackets chapter, are we going to dedicate a segment to come up with a projection for Alex Wenberg or will we let him be? Sounds like you're going to want to at least mention him there from what it sounds like. Why don't we take a second to mention that here? Because if you like hearing us go through like a bunch of players, every fantasy relevant player that we could think of on an NHL team like we've been doing with the Columbus Blue Jackets, of course, we haven't gotten to the defense or goalie yet, then you might really enjoy this project that we're taking on in a couple of months. We're going to be recording an NHL audio almanac. That's like, you know, when you go to the store in September and you see all these fantasy guides there and you can flip through the pages and you see a little write-up about each team and all the players on the team, then you get projections. We're going to do that, but audio form, it's going to be like a 32-chapter audio book, one chapter per team, plus one for goalies, where we're going to, on each chapter, just go through every fantasy relevant player, have discussions like this, come up with an actual projection, which we'll share also in a spreadsheet, so you'll get access to that if you uh, purchase our almanac. Uh, Brian, I've already gone in and told my work that I'm going to be taking a week off of work. I only get like uh, three, four weeks of vacation time, and I'm taking one off to record this almanac. That's how excited I am for it. So if you want to come along for the ride, uh, you can pre-order the almanac at keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. And we actually have come up with a couple things like a little perks, I guess, to help convince you that you may want to pre-order the Almanac. Is now a good time to talk about that, Brian, or is this getting a little boring for our listeners? No, I think it's a perfect time. This is an ad-free show this week, right? This is our ad. We're promoting ourselves. We're betting on ourselves this week by promoting our Almanacs. Okay, keepingcarlson.com slash Almanac. One thing you'll see there is if you pre-order the Almanac, one fun thing we're going to do with everyone who pre-ordered is we're going to do some slow drafts. Brian and I have been participating with some slow drafts with patrons, and it's so much fun. So I think we're going to do that also with the Almanac folk. So basically, if you sign up, we'll give you a little form. And if you've already pre-ordered the Almanac, don't worry, we'll, we'll get you the link to the form where you can sign up if you want to participate in a slow draft. Then it's basically, we'll probably do it on fan tracks. And it's like a basically a regular draft, except everyone has 12 hours to make their pick. So, you know, it just goes for a few weeks. And at the end, it's, it's really a fun exercise, gets your juices flowing. You start thinking, I, like, even though there's nothing really on the line, like I have so much fun when it's my pick is coming up. It's really fun to start thinking about, ooh, who should I pick? And it really just gets you in that drafting mood. Plus, Brian, this will be great content for us 
for the almanac itself, because then we'll be, you know, if we're talking about Josh Anderson versus Oliver Bjorkstrand, we'll be able to reference, oh, well, you know, in the slow drafts, actually, Josh Anderson was consistently getting drafted ahead of Oliver Bjorkstrand. So what does that tell you about his, you know, we'll be able to put in some early research into what ADPs might be come actual drafts. So I think it's going to be a lot of fun. So that's a little pre-order perk. Uh, The other big perk, though, is A, you make Brian and I feel good that we're actually recording this for people who want it and are going to listen to it. Plus, we might raise the price later. Uh, Right now, we're charging uh, $20 or uh, you get 10% discount if you're a patron. And uh, okay, that's enough that I can say about that. I'll tell you another thing about the Almanac at the end of the episode. How about that? I'll I'll leave one extra thing for the end. Uh, But yeah, how about we continue to talk about the Columbus goalies? Because that's one last thing I wanted to talk about on this team, because Sergei Borowski, of course, went to the Florida Panthers. So in Nets, now it looks like we're going to have Eunice Corposalo and Elvis Merzlikens. They look like they're going to be the tandem in line to be playing for the Blue Jackets next season. So let's look at these two guys. So first we have Corposalo. He was great in his rookie season, 2015-16. That same season I mentioned earlier where Bobrowski struggled, that was a great year for Corposalo. He put up a 920 save percentage in 31 games. But since then, he hasn't been good. He's been a 905 or less save percentage goalie in the three seasons since. 897 save percentage in 27 games last season. So just like, let's just say it, it was terrible. He wasn't good at all. Then you have this guy, Elvis Merzlikens, who is the same age as Corpusalo. It's not as if you have one guy who is like a kid and another guy who's a veteran. No, they're like two 25-year-olds. And Elvis Merzlikens has been playing in the Swiss League on a team called Lugano. And he put up uh, really strong numbers last season. He had a 921 save percentage. Actually, in each of his last two seasons, he's had a 921 save percentage. So he's been good in that league for whatever that's worth. So I kind of feel like I'd rather bet on Elvis with the way Corpusalo has looked lately. Like, why not if I'm you know, picking a guy in the draft. Yeah, Corposalo is the one who's been there, but he's also shown that he might not be able to handle it. So Brian, what do you think? Like, how would you rank this tandem and, like in, in terms of each other? Like who you like better between Corposalo and Merzlikens? And also let's say if we wanted to compare them to the Rangers pair who we talked about earlier, like how would you compare the Columbus tandem to the Rangers tandem if you had to just pick a team's goalies? Okay, okay. So Merzlikens, you mentioned his 921 save percentage for Lugano of the Swiss League. Good for him. That's great. Uh, contextually, that's the same percentage that puts him still in the top five in the league. So good, but not head and shoulders above the other top goalies. Uh, one of whom is Red O'Bara. Remember him? He had a 920 save percentage in the Swiss League <laughs> last season. I'm not sure if that's supposed to make me be more or less into Elvis Merzlikens if you're saying he was as good as Red O'Bara. Yeah, well, it's meant to say, you know, it's like when you talk about somebody who is lighting up the AHL and and then it's like, you know who lit up the AHL for seven years? Jason Doig and Denis Hamel, right? <laughs> These are guys, like, it, if Red O'Bara can succeed in the Swiss League, uh, then maybe a, a subpar NHL goalie like Elvis Merzlikens also can. I'm not saying he's subpar. We don't know yet. He's been quoted, I think, Dmitry Filipovich called him the best goalie outside the NHL last year when we did our preview. He's yet to play a game. So I, I'm, my curiosity is peaked for sure. Uh, we're not just going to uh, erase his fantastic year last season just because a few other goalies did it, and one of them is Red O'Bara. One thing about Corpusalo uh, that I still like is that well, last season just wasn't as bad as it looked. It looks like Corpusala left the door wide open. Uh, he had an 897 save percentage. Uh, he did okay at five on five, and he actually wasn't so far behind his expected save percentage. It was Corpusalo's poor penalty kill save percentage that made his numbers look worse than maybe they should have. Um, so that's one reason to still be sort of optimistic that Corpusalo can handle at least a 1A portion of a starter's job. Uh, bigger picture, 
we need to remember, though, that Corpus has had three bad seasons now over a sampling of 60 starts. He's never come close to the heights of his 920 save percentage that he had when he played 31 games as a rookie. So there's reasons to believe and reasons to disbelieve in both these guys, which makes it really weird and fun, especially on a Columbus team that I imagine expects to still contend for a playoff spot going into camp with these two, uh, with goalie chaos uh, firmly in play. It seems to be the plan. I, I read a Q&A with Aaron Portsline, the, the Columbus beat writer for The Athletic recently, and, and he was like, yeah, like they're not going to get another goalie. It's it's Corvasalo and Merzlikens. I'm curious to know if they have a plan B, if they're a month into the season and both guys are just stinking. But I think they're really good underrated tandem to get. Whether or not they're better than that Rangers tandem depends on who you think is going to win more games next year. And I'm actually having a pretty hard time figuring out which team is going to win more between Columbus and New York. I'm leaning towards Columbus, but I feel not at all confident. It feels like a coin flip to me. Yeah, both teams are huge question marks. We have no idea how they're going to look next season. I can see both of them challenging for the playoffs. I could also see both of them really not being very good still. Like with the Rangers, you know, they still are rebuilding team with a lot of young players. So it really depends how good they can be in like their first and second years in the NHL. I think if I'm having to pick a tandem to own in fantasy, give me the Columbus one, just because I feel like with the Rangers, it's very much more likely that they'll go 50-50, right? Like I don't think Lungfist is going to be playing like 65 games. And I also don't see Lungfist only playing like 20 games. Like I really could see them going like, you know, 50 and, and 38, you know, something like that, you know, something close. While with Columbus, I feel like there's more of a chance that one of them just earns the job and plays a ton. So if I'm going to draft a tandem, that's what I'm looking for. And right? I'm looking for a, a lottery ticket here where I use two late picks to grab goalies that might be tandemed, but then I might end up with a starting goalie and I used a late pick to get it. So for that reason, I would take the Columbus tandem over the Rangers tandem for whatever that's worth. Yeah, I can get with that reasoning. I, I also, like I said, I'm leaning towards the Columbus tandem. They just seem a little more experienced as a team. Yeah, they lost a key piece. Uh, but if one of these guys can step up and do an average job, I think they're going to have a team in front of them that can support them quite well. Yeah, and we haven't talked about the defense, but they're still good. They still have Seth Jones. And you know, you'll hear us talk about the Columbus defense in the Almanac, unless something else happens this summer, which I don't expect anything really to happen. Uh, let's go to a couple trades now to close out the show, but they're really big trades with a lot of impact. So it's not going to close out the show in the next five minutes. Uh, let's start with the Arizona Coyotes acquiring Phil Kessel and then some other people, Dane Burks and a fourth-round pick in the 2021 draft from the Pittsburgh Penguins for Alex Galchenyuk and a defenseman named Pierre-Olivier Joseph. And for completion, uh, Arizona did some other things. They traded Connaughton for Carl Soderberg. Uh, but mainly, I want to talk about Kessel for Galchenyuk, and I want to start in Arizona and the arrival now of Phil Kessel. So Kessel had 82 points in 82 games last year. He had 92 points in 17-18. He had 70 points in 16-17 and 59 points in his first year as a Penguin four seasons ago. So a lot like Matt Duchesne, we're looking at someone who's had 80, 90, 70, and 60-point paces over his last four seasons. So how the heck... Am I supposed to try to come up with a projection for Phil Kessel now on a completely new team? To me, it looks like another Duchesne. Like now he goes to Arizona where he'll definitely get the best line mates available in Arizona. Like they didn't bring him in to be a third line guy, but he still, he loses his exposure to Crosby and Malkin, which I'd imagine will especially hit hard on his power play numbers. He had 36 and 42 power play points in each of his last two seasons. So I, I, I'm almost positive he's not going to be able to get those many power play points. So I feel like it's hard to project him for 82 points again if he's going to do not as well on the power play. The question is, is he going to be able to you know, make up for it at even strength or maybe help the Arizona power play at least come close to what Pittsburgh was? But no way he's going to hit it, right? The power play is 
an Achilles heel for Arizona. Scoring in general is an Achilles heel, but their power play in particular is pretty weak. Arizona uh, ranks 28th in the NHL in power play scoring. They only have uh, like 30 more goals in Vegas. Uh, sorry, that's in the last three years. And they only have like 30 more goals in Vegas in that spend. And Vegas... Uh, wasn't even formed for the first of those three years. So Arizona has had power play troubles for a very long time. And I guess they think Phil Kessel is the solve for that. And by the way, Phil Kessel, not another Duchesne. The reason for his different point totals is because it just took Pittsburgh a year to figure out how to use him on the power play. His first year there, uh, they hadn't gotten it yet. And then they, the Penguins figured out how to make key, uh, Phil Kessel the key centerpiece of their power play run the whole thing through him and that's why he has 108 power play points in the last three seasons only Nikita Kucherov has more power play points in that same span Uh, here's the thing though Pittsburgh did run their whole power play through Phil Kessel when we're when we're looking at how he got those points Uh, they were very good at it and so you're like okay well now he's in Arizona they want him there to fix the power play could Arizona just copy it? Do they have the personnel to do it? I don't think so, right? They don't have a Crosby. They don't have a Malkin. And it's a different version of the same question at five on five for what Phil Kessel is going to be capable of. Like Kessel himself, he's a star in his own right. But I definitely have questions about the supporting cast in Arizona, as well as the team style of play. Look at Arizona's DNA as a franchise. It's been forever since they've had a really uh, capable scoring player. Clayton Keller is the only Coyote to have scored more than 56 points since 2011-2012. And that was, as a rookie, he had 65 points. If you look at the last 10 seasons, there have only been five instances of an Arizona Coyote scoring 60 points or more. Uh, And you look back at at franchise, and that was Ray Whitney, Shane Doan, Radim Verbata, uh, and then, like, lo- earlier in franchise history, you had guys like Keith Kachuk and Jeremy Roenick doing big things. That's just when they, they had first moved from Winnipeg. All this to say, there needs to be a shift in Arizona's entire philosophy, right? Now, maybe they're saying, okay, we have Phil Kessel. We can shift our playing style a little bit. Um, but Phil Kessel has been at least a 70-point player in six of his last eight seasons. Like, he's been consistent, but this is a massive change in scenery, plus Kessel's entering his age 32 season. So what do we make of that? I'm going to say I'm going to give Phil 70. If Keller could get 65 as a rookie, I think it would be shortchanging Phil Kessel to give him any less than that and not a little more. Um, but I'm not going to be counting on a whole lot more than 70 points because the power play is his bread and butter. And I'm just not sure that Arizona is going to be able to make it work quite as well as Pittsburgh did. Yeah, I think everything you're saying is fair. No matter who Arizona has, and we could talk about a lot of great players, none of them are the same as Crosby and Malkin. So it is a hit in the personnel around him. But I do want to say that there is, you know, a chance for some change here. Like Arizona, now that they have Phil Kessel, like you said, maybe that's where things start to turn around and the DNA of the team starts to change. Like when have they had a player on their team who previously scored 40 plus goals and had like 90 plus points? Like it's not as if they've ever brought in a player like that. Well, they brought Marion Hosa, but uh, he, I don't think he's played a game for them yet. Uh, and Alex Galchenyuk, who was supposed to break out there. Yeah, well, we'll get to him in a little bit. But let's like, yeah. talk about, you mentioned Clayton Keller, who had a great rookie season, but he disappointed us last season. He only had 47 points after that 65-point rookie season. I mentioned on our patron cast that we did last week that, to me, his career progression 
reminds me of Jake Gensel. Second Jake Gensel mentioned on the podcast. Like Gensel had that great rookie season. And then he kind of disappointed us in the second season. Uh, maybe his line mates were changing a little bit. And then he last year had that huge breakout. Now it's going to be Clayton Keller's third season. And now he's going to be locked in with Kessel. You know, we were talking about Zabanajad. You know, it's a different position. But, you know, now being locked in with Panera. And I'd imagine, I'd hope that Clayton Keller and Phil Kessel are making beautiful music together at even strength and on the power play. And this could be really great for Clayton Keller to you know, maybe even surpass a 65 point rookie season, which would also, if Clayton Keller's as good as people said he was going into last year, then that's also great for Phil Kessel. You know, you have a yin and yang situation, a lot like Crosby and Gensel, but I promise no more Penguins talk until like two minutes later when we talk about Alex Galchenyuk going to the Penguins. Uh, Also, who's going to be the center, right? Playing with Kessel and Clayton Keller. Well, I guess the obvious answer that a lot of people would say would be Derek Stepan. But another name that people might have forgotten is they have this guy, Nick Schmaltz, who came from Chicago partway through the season. He got injured. He only played 17 games before getting hurt, but he put up 14 points in that span. He was playing mostly with Keller and Galchenyuk. So now it's going to be with Keller and Kessel, potentially. And that could be like a really fun line. Also, by the way, Clayton Keller's best quarter of the season was that December-January stretch. He put up 18 points in 23 games. Uh, That's around the time when Nick Schmaltz was there. So now if Nick Schmaltz is there, now you have Phil Kessel. All of a sudden, maybe all of these guys have their upside go up. And I'll throw one other name at you, who I know we've sort of decided that we are going to lock in as a 45-point defenseman. Oliver ekman Larson has shown us that he can't repeat that 45-point or sorry, that 55-point season that he had like a few years ago. He's been a 45-point guy ever since. But now Phil Kessel's there. And if this power play is going to improve, get like 10, 15 more power play points, Oliver ekman Larson is that top power play defenseman. So he's another guy I think might be a little underrated going into next season. Maybe he could jump from being a 45 to a 50 or 55-point guy with Kessel in the picture. So I feel like there's so much reason to be optimistic if you believe that Phil Kessel is as great of a player as he's shown to be on the Leafs and then on the Penguins. And I, I think he is. I know Daniel Negreanu, when he was on our podcast, he told us many reasons why he thinks Phil Kessel is such an amazing player. So, yeah, he's, he's really good. Now he's coming in. And I'm excited about all these players. That's really exciting. I'm glad you're so excited about all these players. Um, I think you're a touch overexcited about each of them. And I'll start with uh, Clayton Keller, who I, actually I'm I think I'm equally excited as you, but I just can't get with this Penguins analogy you're making because uh, Gensel had Crosby. Uh, and like the you said, like in terms of being disappointing or exciting yeah Keller and Gensel have had a similar trajectory but in the types of players they are and the way they get their points and the people around them I see no similarity so I see an emotional analogy to be made but I don't see an empirical analogy to be made that's my bread and butter (laughs) yeah the the emotional analogies so I'm still a big believer in Keller's upside but he has been limited somewhat by his team's style of play. He finally broke that Coyotes 55-point ceiling uh, as a rookie and then took a big step back in his sophomore season. Uh, Having Kessel on the power play is going to help that whole power play, which should help Keller collect a few more points there. So I still like him, and I I don't believe his 65-point season was a fluke. I think he can be a 70-plus point player in the NHL. It's just a matter of how much more time and time needs to pass and how many more players need to be added around him to make that work as for Nick Schmaltz. So I'm just taking a look. Um, you mentioned, you know, he was playing with Galchenyuk and Keller for a bit. And in those games, uh, it seemed as though I, like I was trying to figure out who was playing uh, center for those games. And I'm think for some of them, it was Galchenyuk. And for some of them, it was Schmaltz 
Um, they seem to have a fairly even share of the face-offs. Just looking at the face-off numbers. I know you're really high on Nick Schmaltz uh, centering that top line and not Derek Stepan. Um, and you mentioned how great he was as a Coyote. One of the reasons he had such a great run, 14 points in 17 games upon arriving in Arizona, he had four goals on his nine power play shots as a Coyote. Uh, yeah, so he had some luck, but he also did have a legitimately bigger role than he did in Chicago. Still not enough to, to say he should have scored on four of nine shots on the power play, though. And at five on five, Schmaltz did not seem much different from his Chicago self. So I could see Schmaltz getting up to 55 points with a good power play role, but I'm actually not sure I can expect a whole lot better, especially because I'm not sure he's going to be the top line center. And one reason I'm concerned about that is, is that he kind of sucks at faceoffs. Like faceoffs should be a coin flip for most top line centers. If you're going to be out there taking faceoffs in the offensive zone or like just key faceoffs throughout the game, you should be winning at least a coin flips worth or somewhere around there, give or take two or 3%. Uh, Schmaltz has often been a sub 40% face-off guy. Uh, at least that, that's how it's been a, in recent history. So that's one reason that I think he might not be suited to center that top line if he can't fix that part of his game and why Stepan might actually be the person to get to play with Kessel and Keller up on the top line. Yeah, I guess we'll have to see. Like, I don't know if I will read so, so much into the fact that Schmaltz hasn't been as good at face-offs as Derek Stepan in terms of who's going to play with who. But uh, yeah, it's a good thing to keep in mind. I'm, not, I'm definitely not saying to reach for Nick Schmaltz in your draft, but I feel like Schmaltz is the kind of guy that might not even get drafted in 50% of leagues, right? So you could get him as a free agent or as your last round pick, and you might end up with a top-line, top-power play centerman. So even just having that as a possibility makes him worth having on your radar. But yeah, don't, don't go crazy. It was a very small sample size with him in Arizona, but if he does play with Kessel, that would be great. But we'll learn a lot in training camp, obviously, to see what direction they're going to be going uh, over in Pittsburgh. So Kessel's gone. And the clear beneficiary, again, is this guy we keep mentioning. We keep name-dropping Jake Gensels. Now let's actually talk about him because now he will for sure secure that coveted top power play spot that he's been in and out of over the past couple of seasons as various players got injured. Are we ready now to project Gensel to do better next season even than he did last season now that we see that he's going to be on the top power play like he had 40 goals and 76 points last year with only 11 power play points now he's going to be on the top power play and presumably still be playing on the top line with Crosby and we'll discuss in a little bit who the other piece might be maybe it'll be Galchenyuk who knows uh so yeah Jake Gensel are we looking at him as a potential point per game player now I guess obviously he's a potential point per game player but like in our almanac that we're going to record in a couple of months do you think you're going to be popping down an 85 in the spreadsheet for Jake Gensel or is that too rich for your blood before I answer you Elon I, I could actually just direct you or any listener to listen to any of the last six or seven episodes where it feels like Jake Gensel's name is coming up constantly and so I, I've laid out my case for him uh, and essentially in short terms now because if you want the full picture go back you can see um, he only had 11 points last year on the power play and limited uh, power play one role and we expect Gensel's power play one role to grow and his numbers along with it uh, the question of course is that how dominant can the Pittsburgh power play be without Phil Kessel? He was a key part uh, in moving the puck up the ice and gaining the offensive zone and then actually running the whole thing. So if Pittsburgh can figure out a way to keep their power play operating as usual without Phil Kessel, uh, which sounds like a long shot, but sure, we'll, we'll get, we'll give them some benefit of the doubt and say it's possible. Um, 
then Jake Gensel, you can count on him for like 30 power play points. If not, you're looking at more in the 20 to 25 neighborhood. And uh, the underlying all this talk of his power play production is that his even strength points should stay uh, pretty similar. Everything he did last year looked sustainable. So, so long as he continues to get to play with Crosby and whoever the heck else on that top line, uh, I expect Gensel's points to keep coming. So yeah, he had 11 power play points last year uh, with 70 odd points. You can add 10 to his totals for sure. And he could, if that power play clicks monstrously, it's not, it's not so far fetched to say he could be a 90 point player. It seems hard for me to get the words out, but I I'm there. I said it. Wow. I like it. Yeah. I like taking a swing, especially because you've been down on a lot of other people, but it seems like you're super high in Gensel. Yeah, I'm sorry. I keep bringing up Gensel, but things keep happening. Like, and now like with it's Phil true. Kessel- the situation has changed Yeah, every but- time you ask me about him. The one thing I actually wasn't even planning on mentioning on the show, but you bring it up. It's a good point. Like, maybe should we be talking about some other Penguins players maybe being hurt? Like, maybe Gensel, you know, he can't be hurt from Kessel not being there because he wasn't even on the top power play for most of the season. And so his even strength situation stays the same and he just could get better. But guys like Crosby and Malkin and Latang, maybe they're not as good now without Kessel on the top power play. Maybe there's a little bit more risk there. So that's something to keep in mind. I don't know if we have to dig into that too much. Maybe we could save it for the Almanac. The, the thing I really want to talk about is... What like first of all, what do we think about Galchenyuk now? Like he showed that he had huge offensive potential for a couple of years on the halves, but he seems to have settled into like an around a fifty point guy over the past couple of seasons. But of course, he's on the Penguins. Like the one thing that comes to my mind is you know like everyone whenever someone goes to the Penguins, they're like, oh my god, he's gonna play with Crosby or Malkin. This guy's gonna be amazing, and it, and it never ends up happening, right? Like these players who come to the Penguins, generally their value doesn't go up the way people expect it will. So I don't know. My hunch is that Galchenyuk maybe could stay a fifty point guy. Of course, it would help if he gets on a line with Crosby or Malkin, and it would really help if he could be the one who steps on that top power play, maybe instead of Patrick Hornfist, if they start changing things all around, maybe all of a sudden you don't need Hornfist there as the net front guy, or maybe you do, right? So there's so much that we don't know about the Penguins. Like, I can name you so many players that I could see fitting into the top six and maybe a top power play spot on this team. Like, we know for sure three of the top six spots are going to be Malkin, Crosby, Gensel. That leaves three open spots, and it could be like Galchenyuk, Hornqvist, Dominic Cahoon, who they got from the Blackhawks for Olimata earlier in the summer. We've got Jared McCann, who was playing on that top line at the end of the season and doing pretty well. Brian Rust, who's been there before. There's Brandon Tanev, who signed in free agency. Zach Aston Reese, Dominic Simone have all been there. So, like, is there anyone here, as you see, as having more than just like a dice rolls chance of being fantasy relevant next season now that there's all these open spots at even strength and maybe even one on the power play? Oh, I even left out a name. Nick Bjugstad is there. So I guess the you know, maybe Nick Bjugstad is like the third line center, or maybe he gets in the top six. Uh, I, and that probably also helps or hurts Galchenyuk, right? If Galchenyuk's there to be the third line center, not great for him. If he's in the top six, it's good for him. So it's like a million names I'm throwing at you. <laughs> like, and yeah. we have no idea who's going to be good. None. And I think you were probably right to leave out Nick Bjugstad's name. It's, they acquired him. They tried him. And it seemed like they thought it was over again. Just because, like, like I mentioned, we were talking about Nashville. Teams have time now to, they're not acquiring someone midseason. They have time to figure out what this player offers, how they jibe with other teammates, work through a training camp, work through exhibition games, work through the first week of the season. Uh, but I'm not, I'm be excited to be the guy of all the ones you mentioned that I least expect to get up there. Alex Galchenyuk is the big question mark, right? Like, I don't know what Pittsburgh really has available to offer him. Um, and trying to think of, okay, uh, what's happened when Pittsburgh has acquired other seemingly talented players who needed a change of scenery? What happened to them? Uh, remember when they acquired David Perron? 
and we thought it would be so amazing. And then David Perron was not able to succeed in Pittsburgh. Um, and then you look at when they acquired Patrick Hornquist, but Hornquist was already succeeding. He just continued to succeed uh, to a higher extent in Pittsburgh because they were scoring more goals than Nashville was at the time. So I still, for Galchenyuk, hold out hope that he has this unrealized potential that the Penguins will figure out how to tap. He's He seems to me like the sort of guy who could be a really fantastic early season free agency ad when we see that he's gotten good deployment. Or uh, if your league's deep enough, you know, you could be a good late enough flyer in deep enough drafts. I still believe, I don't know if I should, but I still believe in Alex Galchenyuk. And then, yeah, McKinn, Simone, Rust are the other names. And the Penguins have had a revolving door forever. I think they are going to tinker with their power play a little bit to start the season. So expect to not really know. It's it's almost like this is the tandem version of skaters, like the goalie tandem version of skaters. You you just grab both guys and then you wait to see what happens. You might want to grab a few of the depth pens to see if one is able to grab the job or you'll just keep cycling them out as the revolving door continues in, in top line and top power play roles in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Okay. And maybe I'll throw out another name just to say that we said all the possible names. I did see you were going back and forth with a Penguins beat writer and I think that maybe there's a potential that Justin Schultz could join on that top power play. Maybe they go three forwards, two D. So there's another guy who could potentially get some value from Kessel leaving. But yeah, I think I know, I know Dmitry Filipovich, who we did a couple podcasts with recently. He's into Jared McCann on that top line. So that he's being vouched for, but yeah, who knows? I'll, uh, maybe I'll also just mention, because I always love to throw a bone to our bangers and mash participants that are listeners. Brandon Tanev, if he gets a spot in the top six, this is a guy who was great for your hits leagues also back when he was on Winnipeg. So if he could continue with the peripherals and get one of these great spots in Pittsburgh, he could be a really good guy to slot in in like daily fantasy or as a streamer or forever, how long he's there. Uh, but I guess with that, let's move on to our last topic of the episode, which is the other big trade that happened the day after the UFA day. So I guess July 2nd, the it was announced the Colorado Avalanche acquired Nazem Kadri and defenseman Kale Rosen and a third round pick in 2020 from the Toronto Maple Leafs for defenseman Tyson Berry and forward Alex Kerfoot and a sixth round pick. And I believe Colorado is even paying some of Tyson Berry's contract. But basically, if we just want to break it down, we've got Kadri for Berry and Kerfoot. And let's see how this affects both of these teams. I want to start on the Avalanche and then end the show on the Leafs. Okay, so... Uh, the Avalanche, first of all, they were very busy over this offseason. So we have to, for completion's sake, they traded Carl Soderberg, who we talked about before, to the Coyotes, which opened up that line two center spot that Kadri, I think, is very nicely going to fit into on the Avalanche. Uh, they also traded a couple picks to the Washington Capitals for Andre Burakovsky, who maybe could step in as one of Kadri's wingers, say, in, in place of Alex Kerfoot. And hey, maybe the other winger could be Eunice Donskoy, who is someone they signed as a UFA for a four-year deal. So potentially you could have an all-new uh, line of players on Colorado to make up their second line in Kadri, Burakovsky, and Donskoy. Um, last season, by the way, Carl Soderberg had 49 points, and this guy didn't even get that much power play time, and he still had 49 points. A very quiet, like successful season for him. So if Nazem Kadri, who I think we all expect to be better offensively than Carl Soderberg, comes in on the second line and also finally takes that fourth forward power play spot on Colorado, which you know, no one else has really been able to do. I feel like if Soderberg could get 49, why can't Kadri at least get back to his like 61-point height that he was hitting back in 2016-17, right? Like this guy has been showing us that he can be really successful when put in a position. And I feel like he might be in a really great position as the line two center and top power play guy over in Colorado. So yeah, what's your take on Nazem Kadri for next season? I feel like this has to be good for him compared to being third line center in Toronto, even though he was on a pretty good power play. 
Well, so that's exactly the balance we're trying to strike here because Nazem Kadri's best seasons, the ones where he had 55, 60 points, came with an incredibly dangerous power play role that got him 12 goals with the man advantage in each of them. And of course, he had that really good season in the lockout Jordan season. So I'm talking about his most recent best seasons where he had 55, 60 points. Um, so the question is, is there a really dangerous power play role available for Kadri in Colorado? Can he be more than just included on the top unit, but lead that top unit in goal scoring the way that he led the Leafs in power play goals in both the years that he had 12? Um, and I'm not sure that that can actually happen. It would mean that Colorado would have to redirect some of the goal scoring wealth away from Landis Gog, McKinnon, and Rantanen, who combined for 38 power play goals last season on one of the league's most dangerous units. So why would they make huge changes? But Kadri does seem like the best candidate to be the fourth forward on that unit, both in terms of what he's got in talent and what's on his resume. And that could help him find his way to 55-point territory again, maybe with more assists than goals, though. Um, it'd be really good, by the way, for Colorado to have a 55-point player outside of their top three forwards and uh, their top defenseman who's now gone. But between McKinnon, Rantanen, Landeskog, and Barry um, – they accounted for such a huge percentage proportion of Colorado's scoring. They've never had, uh, at least since those, since that group has gotten together, uh, they've never had any kind of secondary scoring available outside of those four guys. Colorado's next best scorer last year was Carl Soderberg with 49 points. The year before that, it was Alex Kerfoot with 43 points. So I think Cadre is going to be asked to break that mold and, has what it takes to succeed to actually accomplish that. So I, I'm still optimistic about Kadri. I like him centering the second line. I like him being more of a participant in the top power play than the main shooter. Um, it, it's, it's not going to be quite the same role, or at least I wouldn't expect it to be the same role he had in Toronto, but there's still an opportunity for him to pick up about as many points, so long as he is there night in, night out. Yeah, like I feel like, I really like Kadri. I like this for Kadri a lot. I think he's going to get around 60 points next year. I think that's what I'm going to put down. Hard to say a lot more than that, but you never know. Just that exposure on the top power play, that could really work out well. Even if it's not running through him, there's still going to be a lot of assists available and some goals, you know, when you're playing with McKinnon and Ranson and Landis Gog, of course. And of course, the other big change because of this trade is that Colorado top power play, the defense part, right? Because Tyson Barry has been so good there. And now he leaves that, leaves the door wide open to step in on that deadly McKinnon, Ranson. And Landis got Kadri top power play. And all indications, I would think, are that Cal McCarr is going to be that guy. Like Cam said, when Cam Robinson, remember we did that prospects episode a couple weeks ago, he said McCarr had a great season last year at UMass Amherst. And you take a look, it's true. <laughs> 49 points in 41 games. Cam didn't lie. Then he joined the Avalanche for the playoffs, picked up, I think it was like six points in 10 games. He was playing 17 plus minutes a game. So Makar like stepped right in and was a good player on the team. Now he's a year older and it seems like this must be his job to lose. Like maybe there's like Sam Girard who could, he, he's shown that he could maybe be a power play guy that produces. So maybe he could have a chance to on that top power play, but I think it's going to be Cal Makar. And hey, if Tyson Barry was able to put up 59 points last season, Maybe it's fair to say that Cal McCarr or whoever is the guy who has that job might be able to do close to the same. Like, I feel like it's not out of the realm of possibility that McCarr is a 55 plus point defenseman next season. I'm with you. Uh, the way I'm trying to figure out exactly where McCarr's ceiling might be, though, and I, I, I'm I, 55 might be a little dubious. I know this isn't a great comparison, but look to Rasmus Dahlin last year 
in Buffalo. He was able to come in in his rookie season and match Ristolainen's power play production from the year earlier. He came up a few points short, but remember, he didn't uh, have quite as, like, he didn't have the full season on the top power play. This is Darlene in Buffalo. Um, So, okay, so who's the comparable in Colorado? Well, it was Tyson Barry, had 25 power play points from the QB1 spot. So that's the mark for McCarr to aim for. I don't know if he can get there. Like, look on, on the season, uh, like, full like, all situations, Darlene had 44 points last year, right? And he was wonder rookie, ready to step in and just enter the league and do his thing. I know Colorado is stronger than Buffalo offensively, but it doesn't mean that Makar automatically benefits from that, right? Like, he's going to be on the power play. Is he going to be as involved as Tyson Barry was? Is, is he going to be able to create the same way that Tyson Barry did? Uh, and also, Makar probably isn't quite as good as Rasmus Dahlin or isn't going to be in his rookie season anyway. So I'm actually leaning more towards 40, 45 points for Cal Makar because I think it's a really exceptional thing for a rookie defenseman to even get 40 points. Uh, so calling for 55 is, is a, a big, big ask. Um, but I think Makar is going to get, like, I'll put him down for 15, 20 points on the power play and then uh, another 20 or so at even strength. So I'm actually, I, I'm with you that 55 is possible because all the pieces are in place. But just because Colorado scores a lot of goals, they have three guys plus Nazem Kadri who are happy to create without Cal Makar, right? So uh, it, it doesn't mean that he has to get in on them. And of course, Sam Girard is lurking. And if Cal Makar does not, uh, seem at first blush to to be ready to step into this power play quarterback role. The Avs have a guy ready to step in there, and Eric Johnson is also there, which is like a bit of a deep cut, but they're there, right? It's not like it's Makar or Bus. There are alternate options. So okay. Makar isn't guaranteed that spot. Uh, I hope he can step in and take advantage of it, but even if he can, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm staying pretty cool to him at 40 points. Yeah, you know what, Brian? I'm convinced, actually, because I think that a lot of people are going to be reaching for him next season in a one-year league. Maybe let someone else reach for Cal McCarr. Of course, it depends what kind of league you're in, right? Like, some people will be like, I've never heard of this guy, and he's going to fall in drafts, and you can get him in the last round, then you've got a steal. But yeah, if everyone is thinking of him to just step in and do what Barry did, it is a bit of a swing, right? It's possible, but also, you know, these rookies, they've never played a full season, like 82 games, so, you know, that could wear on a player. You know, there's a lot to learn. So, okay, I'm with you. Let someone else take McCarr in your one-year leagues but in a you know dynasty league you might be looking at Makar as like one of the top defensemen available like maybe you're talking about him or Rasmus Dahlin and Makar is playing on a power play that so far has been better though Buffalo hopefully gets better and Dahlin like you said might be a better player than Makar so okay you have convinced me maybe don't swing for Makar in a one-year league I think I'll still probably put down like 45 points in the almanac just to be cool just to be like a couple more points ahead of you uh let's end the show in Toronto so much to discuss there we've already discussed them a lot in the offseason like the Kapanen and Janssen signings though now with Kadri leaving that means that we have to kind of reassess what we think is going to happen in their top six right like maybe they'll load up their top two lines you can imagine like if they just put all their top offensive players in the top six you could imagine like Tavares, Marner, Nylander, and then Matthews with Janssen and Kapanen. Though, of course, Mike Babcock seems to love Zach Hyman and playing him with Tavares and Marner. So maybe he stays there. And now all of a sudden, one of these guys falls out of the top six. Plus, they're bringing in Alex Kerfoot, who maybe could play like third line center or maybe he takes a spot in the top six so you know just like in Colorado or maybe not as much in Colorado but just like in some other teams we've got a lot of questions with what's going to happen in Toronto how everything's going to shake out do you see any winners or losers among like Nylander, Kapanen, Janssen or even Kerfoot coming to Toronto and like Kadri leaving 
Of course, the one thing we have to mention is Kadri leaving means he'll be taking his top power play time with him, right? So one of these guys might get bumped from the top six, but also one of these guys might get on the top power play. Unless, of course, the Leafs do the unthinkable and go with three forwards and two defensemen now that they've brought a 25 power play point D-man in in Tyson Barry. But maybe before we get to discussing what's going to happen with the defensemen, what do you think about our Nylanders, Kapanen, Janssen's, Kerfoots? Who's, who's bumped out of the top six? Who are you excited about? And who are you like cooler on? So hard to say. The addition of Alex Kerfoot really complicates things. So in the top six, you've got Marner, Matthews, Tavares locked in, assuming Marner signs, which I'm assuming he's going to until further notice. Uh, And then you've got a whole bunch of names that you just gave. Uh, Zach Hyman's in there. Uh, Kerfoot, I'm not going to repeat them all, but And then I've seen these hockey hipster suggestions being made also that guys like Bracco and Moore also get a spot alongside either Matthews or Tavares. And then the other line, like the quote unquote third line is just the top nine. And that's centered by Alex Alex Kerfoot or William Nylander, but is definitely uh, markedly worse than it's, or not markedly worse, but uh, markedly less desirable place for a player to land on than on the top two lines. So I think instead of really trying to work out the whole picture, we're just trying to figure out whose job with Matthews or Tavares should be considered most secure. And I, I wish I could tell you, I have zero idea. I have a gut sense that Andreas Janssen really strutted his stuff and that he seems like a player who needs to be uh, with one of those players so that you can get the most out of him. Um but that's as far as I can really go. I wish I had more insight to offer this again. This is like a similar goalie tandem thing, right? It's like draft all the depth leafs uh, with your last picks. You'll hit on one or two of them and you'll have to replace the others, but hopefully the upside of the one or two that you do hit on uh, makes it worth the gamble. Yeah, and again, it depends what kind of league you're in, because we all know there's generally Leafs fans, at least in my leagues, there's always Leafs fans who are not going to let these guys fall. So in that case, you're saying maybe let someone else take these Leafs players because there's too much risk involved in potentially getting someone who's going to be in the bottom six. I feel like Nylander, you know, if no one else is good enough to play third line center, all of a sudden he might be there and that wouldn't be good for him, even though that probably is really great for the Leafs. Uh, Let's end the show with the defenseman. Another huge question mark because they bring in Tyson Barry, who's been so good on the power play, but they already have Morgan Riley, who had 21 power play points and 72 points overall last season. And I kind of feel like I'm having deja vu of our hand wringing last summer, trying to figure out how Carlson and Burns would coexist in San Jose. Do you see this as a similar situation to that? Like now we have two great defensemen, specifically two defensemen who have shown to be really great on the power play. I'm very curious to get your take on how you see this all shaking out with Tyson Barry and Morgan Riley both in the fold. Tyson Barry is a very capable power play quarterback, although he's not an elite power play quarterback, or at least his numbers didn't show him to be one in the last couple seasons. He was on a great unit. I'm not saying he was piggybacking or riding coattails. He, he picked up 25 points on the power play last season. Nothing to sneeze at, but Morgan Riley's numbers are more impressive and the way that he contributed to his power play success. So I think Morgan Riley absolutely is on the top power play to start the season and probably to finish the season too. And probably in the middle of the season, I I think the only way that Barry gets on the top unit is if the Leafs decide to go three forwards, two defensemen. And what they could do is something like what San Jose did. You mentioned the analogy where, you know, they had Burns and Carlson both uh, trying to find the right role for them that, you know, they could play to both their strengths, you know, Burns' shot and Carlson's setups. So maybe the Leafs are able to do something similar or looking to do something similar. But 
Barry and Riley are not Burns and Carlson either. So I don't think Barry needs to be on that top unit. I think the Leafs are happy to have him at five on five and quarterbacking a second unit. That's great. Um, but he's not like, I'm concerned. His fancy value definitely takes a tumble because he, uh, he needs those power play points to really be super relevant. He could still probably be a 40 point player if, uh, you know, without a top power play role. And this is all assuming that the Leafs don't have two balanced units, uh, which I don't think they're going to go back to. But bottom line for me is that Morgan Riley is the guy in Toronto. Tyson Berry just has to hope to get in on some of the action. Wow. Like, I'm, I'm surprised, right? Like, I just don't get the reason. Like, Morgan Riley had 21 power play points last year. Barry had 29. Morgan Riley used to not even be the top power play defenseman. Like, he just earned this job last year. And yeah, he had a great season. But Tyson Barry has been the top power play guy in Colorado, like, year in, year out. And, and he's. I know some so- GMs who have been GMs in the NHL year in, year out. And there's some GMs who have just been GMs for okay. a couple years. But it doesn't mean one is better than the other sorry so i just don't get it like why it barry had more power play points than riley last season so why do you think it's such a sure thing that riley's the one who doesn't have his fantasy you know value hit and and he's for sure going to be the one quarterback in the top power play so if i'm looking at offensive metrics on the power play like uh expected goals and shot attempts it's morgan riley who comes out like significantly ahead it we actually tweeted out a a comparison chart it's an rapm chart we talked about in our last patron cast um you can get them at evolving-hockey.com it's in the rapm menu but you just look at um the what stats were those expected goals goals for expected goals and shot attempts and morgan riley is elite in all three tyson berry is not yeah but that but maybe that's not his job right like maybe barry passes it on the power play and someone else does the goals and the the shot attempts and all of that like the power play quarterback's job isn't always to take shots it's not all brent burns well brent burns is also like known for just bombing it right that's what i'm saying i'm saying not all power plays run like the one with brent burns like some power plays the quarterback is the one who passes it to someone else who does the shots yeah so that that'll be barry's move but what i'm saying is that morgan riley did a great job in his role last year, I, I just like I know I know you're saying just wrote points, but I don't know. I'm not ready to assign like not every point is equal. Right? <laughs> I'm not ready. I, like I'm not ready either to like say one over the other. Like if anything, like I'm just surprised you seem like so confident that Morgan well, Riley is better Riley's on the. Power- successfully ran the Toronto power play last year. I, I don't think Tyson Barry is coming in to replace him in that role. Like I, I just don't see what the logic would be. And t- and also by the way, Tyson Barry played. Uh, almost a hundred more power play minutes. So if you control for, for, for opportunities and time on ice, uh, it's not, I, you know, you just look at their points rates, which I don't have right in front of me, but I would imagine Riley might even be ahead of Barry there. Yeah, that's important. Right. So maybe we can look into that when we do the almanac to get exactly like power play points per 60 minutes. Yeah. It's obviously unfair if one player played a lot more on the power play. And I say this all as someone who, when the trade happened, I'm like, oh, like that's bad news for Riley. Barry, like we've been big fans of Tyson Barry. We have been shouting that he's a 60 point capable power play quarterback for a couple years longer than I think uh, most people have realized. And then I checked the numbers and like I had some assumptions that were wrong about uh, exactly how good Barry was and exactly how good Riley was. And uh, I didn't I don't, expect to see the gap I saw. But do you expect Babcock to be checking these numbers and making his decision? Because the other Absolutely. Thing that, I guess. I, I don't know. The thing that sticks with me also is that it took Morgan Riley so long to gain the favor. Maybe he was just the best option. Like, why, you know, it makes me wonder, like, why wasn't he there earlier if he's, like, so amazing? But you're right. Like, I don't know. I just kind of feel like it's not as 
like uh, decided yet, I guess. Like I could see them trying multiple things and I could see maybe even them going to defensemen. So for me, I'm, I, I feel like I'm almost like not excited about either of them in fantasy if people if people are going to reach for them and i'm excited for both of them if they're going to fall you know like and if people are going to be still expecting morgan riley to be a 70 point guy maybe i'm happy to let someone else take him and if people are expecting tyson barry to fall to be a 40 point guy like you're projecting i'm very happy to get tyson barry late because there's that big upside of uh, mason's dropping some top tier puns in the chat room here is it better to be barry good or riley good really good or very good i don't know brian i feel like you'd like jokes like that is that like Those an episode title mason yeah <laughs> uh okay so let's end it there we obviously don't have the answers a lot of these things we don't have the answers obviously it'll help in training camp we'll get some data but a lot of this stuff all we could do brian gives you all the great underlying numbers and then we go and see if next season if all these things play out the way that it kind of has in the past but things are always surprising us and ufa time is always so fun to speculate about this stuff but of course it's I, i much more enjoy when we're actually talking about real nhl games that have happened where we can look at the line combos and we can look at the shots and goals and everything and really nail it down but this is the best we got right now and i think we just put together a really fun episode brian i've had a blast talking to you about all this and we still have so much to go i'm so looking forward to do this all again in a couple weeks programming note elon i hope you remember our next episode is going to be released on a monday Okay, so you and I will talk offline because I'm actually going on a vacation to Halifax in the next couple of weeks. So actually, I didn't so, really check the dates. So we'll talk about <laughs> it. It might actually be released on a Wednesday. Or th- it might. I, I think it just might be safe to say it's, it might not be exactly two weeks from now. It might be two and a half. Yeah, two and a half or one and a half. We'll figure Three it out. Three weeks. But, yeah, in a month. Uh, the one thing we do know is we have a lot still to talk about. We'll talk about Pavelski and Corey Perry going to Dallas, like Zuccarello going to Minnesota, Marcus Johansson just got signed by the Buffalo Sabres. We've got all these goalies switching teams, Varlamov, Leonard, Mike Smith, Talbot, uh, Mrazik and Anders Lee both stayed put uh there's even some lesser fantasy impact guys that will maybe want to touch on McElhenney went to Tam- Tampa uh Simmons in New Jersey Tyler Myers to Vancouver uh there's there's more uh, Andrew Shaw went to the Blackhawks Howla and Reimer to the Hurricanes Jimmy VC to Buffalo so we've got a lot of content that we'll try our best to get through over the next episode or two and I'm really excited for it but I wanted to hit the really high points in this one the big names and I think we've done that so if you like the show We'd love to hear from you. I mentioned on the Patreon cast, I wouldn't mind hearing feedback about which shows you like and which ones you don't like as much to sort of get a sense of what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong. We, especially during the summer, it's a great time for us to tinker with the format if you think there's things that you'd like us to do differently. So we'd love to hear from you at Keeping Carlson on Twitter. I promise we read every tweet. And also you can also tweet at us with your fantasy advice questions and we're always happy to answer those. Uh, I mentioned the Almanac earlier. We'd love for you to get in on our Almanac pre-sales. That's keepingcarlson.com slash Almanac. Even if you're undecided, why not go to the page, keepingcarlson.com slash Almanac, and read up our pitch there of all the things we're going to offer you and all the things you're going to get if you decide to pre-order that uh, audio Almanac, the, the second ever that's ever happened in the world, an NHL audio Almanac. Then, of course, we have our Patreon program, keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Get in on our Facebook group. We're having a lot of fun there. We've also been releasing a bunch of bonus patron content lately. We did our patron cast last week. I also recorded an episode with Dave Benton where we, oh, this is like a lot of inside baseball here, but like we do on the patron group, we do a ranking of players. We're, we've been like doing a daily draft where we pick a new player to rank based on everyone's votes. And then Dave and I did a podcast for the patrons where we sort of debated whether each pick was a good pick or a bad pick. So that was a lot of fun. There's a lot of good stuff in our patron program. Program. So our, the two big links that I implore you to check out are keepingcarlson.com slash patron and keepingcarlson.com slash almanac. Brian will make sure to link those in the show notes. Of course, if you're looking at this on, if you're listening on your iPhone or Android, or, I, don't know, I feel like at this point, you're almost like an old man if you say iPhone, right? Like no one uses iPhones anymore. Am I wrong about that? 
like as a word or the actual phones? Like both. Like I feel like it's almost like saying um, Nintendo when there's like so many other gaming systems out there. It's like, oh, my kid's playing Nintendo. And I'm just like, oh, if you're listening on your iPhone, like a lot of people are using a lot of different devices at this I just point. Don't, I don't understand. It's an extra syllable to say I. Is it just leave it out? I should. Yeah. At this point, it's on your phone. Right. Exactly. Maybe, maybe some people are listening on like a iPad, but again, <laughs> a tablet, I should say. Right. I got to be more generic. Device. Uh, yeah, on your device, and I hope uh, you enjoy listening to us on your device. But at this point, it's late, and clearly I am delirious. So, Brian, how about we cue that outro music, and you go ahead and read us the credits. Okay. This episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and powered by our patrons, including our newest ones, Josh, Mike, S- uh, Stephen, Jesse, Robert, James, thank you for becoming patrons and enjoying all the perks that come with it. Uh, again, you could be a patron this summer for just a buck and get all our usual patron, uh, all our usual patron perks. Kimacarlson.com slash patron. Uh, this episode was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Dauber Prospects, Natural Stat Trick, Evolving Hockey, Cap Friendly, Charting Hockey, Hockey Reference, Hockey Viz, Hockey Database, and Elite Prospects. Great job, as always, Brian. And I'm looking forward to talking to you at some point in the future about all of these other signings and trades. Peace out. Keep on keeping Carlson. Bye-bye.